take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 3. We are in a series of messages as we are walking verse by verse, word by word through this wonderful book of Romans. We uh, have talked to you about, I've talked to you and shared with you that the book of Romans is divided into four different categories, four uh, different main themes. This is um, the, the, the big theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. And right now we're in the gospel and hope. You say, well, Pastor, so far, Romans 1, Romans 2, and what we've got through in Romans 3, there's not been a lot of hope. There's been a whole lot of sin, but not a lot of hope. Well, this is where the page turns, and we begin to see here in Romans chapter 3, verse 20 and following, that there is hope, but the reality of sin is ever before us. If you deny the reality of sin, just look around our own country. I don't know if you saw what happened in Dallas here uh, the past few days, but it is a horrendous thing that is happening in the city of Dallas, Texas, and across the world. Sarah and I lived in Dallas for seven years as I was studying for my MDiv there at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, and grew to love the city of Dallas and met many of the fine officers there in Dallas. And any type of, of murder that's happening across our country targeting police officers is wrong. My, my father is a police officer, the chief of police in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, there in East Tennessee, the, the home of Dollywood. Yes, Dolly Parton has a theme park, and it's in my own backyard. And my dad is the chief of police. He's been the chief of police there for 36 years. So I grew up around officers, and I, I came to, to love police officers. And uh, the, it, it, policemen are just like any profession. There's good officers, and then there's corrupted officers. But that's the way it is in any profession, right? There are good pastors and there are corrupt pastors. There are good lawyers and there are corrupt lawyers. Every profession has uh, those that are good and then those that have corrupted it. But as I look at this, the, the, our problem are not police officers. Our problem are not uh, groups of, of people. Our, our problem is that we've completely, as a country, we've completely missed the mark. My prayer is that we find the answer. That these cities come to and find the answer, and the answer, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus makes us colorblind. I think people should look at our church. You know, Aloma Church is a good representation, I believe, of what God intends for his people. When you look at Aloma Church, we have all different ethnicities, we have all different nationalities represented in this church, and you know what? We all get along. We, we, we get along. We, we, we come together united in the bonds of Christ, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I believe that the, the nation can learn some things about this church. Why is it that we could get along together like this? Because this is a Jesus church. This is a Jesus church. And I pray for revival in our cities that our cities become Jesus cities. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. Our only hope today and our only hope tomorrow is Jesus. It's spelled out clearly here in the passages before us. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. Romans chapter 3, we'll begin reading here in verse number 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, that means to be made plain, to be made clear, apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and a justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father, we thank you for this word. Now we pray that you'll speak to us from it. Father, we don't want to just play church. We want to hear a message from you. We ask these things in Christ's name and all of God's people said, please be seated. There's four truths I want you to see here today that come from this passage. Our first truth is this, that God's wrath burns against sin. This is a concept that Paul has been building in Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3 up to this point, that God's wrath goes against sin. God's wrath burns against sin. The thesis statement for Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4 is found over in Romans chapter 1. Turn over with me a page to Romans chapter 1. And, you know, any book, any uh, paper that you write, any book that you read is going to have a thesis statement. A thesis statement is basically a summarization of what is about to be said. And so the, the thesis statement of the first four chapters of Romans is found here beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Let's read what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the theme here you see is the gospel, the gospel of God. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now look at verse 18, which is tied to 16 and 17. For the wrath of God, why is his righteousness here? Why does he give the gospel to us? He answers that in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's our answer. You see, this thesis statement, the, the, what, the theme for Romans 1, 2, and 3 is this, that the wrath of God burns against sin. If you committed just one sin in your life, if you had the capability and the ability to commit only one sin in your life, the Bible teaches us that the wrath of God is burning against that one sin. But here's our dilemma. As much as you want to remove that sin yourself, you can't. You see, once we commit sin, sin sends deep roots into our heart, and we cannot pluck it out ourselves. We cannot remove that sin on our own. And so this is what Paul's point is so far, that we cannot save ourselves. We can't do this ourselves. We cannot pluck out our own sin. And oh, sin is a huge deal to God. If you've missed anything we've said over the past few weeks, I, I hope, or if you've not, if you've heard anything over the past few weeks, I hope that you've heard this, that sin is a huge deal to God. You know, we put different levels on sin, don't we? We say one sin is not as bad as this sin. This sin is not as bad as that sin. You know, adultery and murder, those are big ones, but gluttony and, and lying, yeah, no one really cares about those anymore, right? I mean, is lying even a sin anymore? There are some who lie and they, they don't ever get into trouble. Just ask the Clintons about it. I'll let you pick which Clinton you want to choose. Please don't send me emails or letters or phone calls. I'm not endorsing the, I don't endorse Candace from this pulpit, but if the shoe fits, you need to wear it. I've got a few other jokes here for you. You ready? Let me be an equal opportunity offender here today. Someone asked me the other day, they said, if, Pastor, if all the Republican politicians and all the Democrat politicians were out on a boat, miles away at sea, without food and without water, who would survive? I said, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? 
America. <laughs> One more, and then we'll get back to the text. I just can't help myself. You know what the difference is between baseball and politics? In baseball, when you're caught stealing, you're thrown out. Ooh, that one went over better in the first hour, so. But whether we're talking about, now let's bring this back together, whether we're talking about lying or stealing or any other sin, maybe it's a sin that you thought you've gotten away with, I don't know. The Bible says that God's wrath burns against sin. There, there's no such thing as a small sin. There, there's, there's no such thing as a sin that we get away with. We, 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 we realize this text is teaching us, the text is screaming to us that the wrath of God burns, burns against sin. Therefore, God cannot allow sin into heaven. We cannot stand in the presence of God in sinful mankind. It doesn't work that way because God's wrath burns against our sin. Number two, the second thing this text teaches us, everybody is messed up. Everybody's messed up. In verses nine and following, we saw this last week, a summarization of everything up until this point in the book of Romans. We saw that there are three categories that sin has taken us down. Let's recap those. Number one, we said that sin flaws our character. Verse 10 says that no one's righteous, no, not one. Verse 11 of Romans 3 says that no one understands, no one seeks after God. So our, our character is flawed by sin. But then he says our conversation is depraved by sin. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb with their tongues, they practice deceit. So not only our character and our communication has been flawed by sin, but also our conduct. Verse 15, he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Verse 18 says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, sin has plagued us in every single area of our character, of our conduct, even of our own communication. And we inherited all of this from Adam. You were born into sin. This is what David said, I was born into sin. That's why you don't have to teach a small child to, to be selfish. You have to teach a small child to share. The, the sin nature is, is inherent within us from a very early age. That's why sins don't make us sinners. We sin because we are sinners. The righteousness of God, though, is seen here in verses 21 and 22. And this stands in contrast. This is our hope. Verses 21 and following talk about the righteousness of God and the, the goodness of God and the holiness of God and what God has done to fix the problem that we have found ourselves in. And this is where the hope comes in. But I still hear people say, well, my religion... My religion is the Ten Commandments. Have you ever heard somebody say that? But my religion is the Ten Commandments. I try to keep the Ten Commandments, but is it possible to keep the whole law? Didn't Paul just tell us that it's not possible to keep the whole law? In fact, either in substance or in spirit, we've broken every single law of the commandments. Jesus said that if you break just one of the commandments, you've broken them all. So how in the world can we say that the Ten Commandments are my religion when we've broken every single one of them? I heard somebody the other day say, well, you know, Wes, I, I don't really like the Old Testament and I don't really like the writings of Paul. I prefer just to live by the teachings of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is, is what I try to live by. I said, oh, really? That's interesting because what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount is 
be ye perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. How's that working out for you? You see, what Jesus is saying in his sermon, there's no difference in what he said than what the Old Testament prophets said and also what Paul said. The, the theme is the same, that, that God is holy and we are not, that God is perfect and we are not, God is awesome and we are not. That's the theme, that there is a huge disconnect between us, the created, and the creator. There's a huge disconnect, and this is what everybody is talking about, perfection. Listen, perfection is what God demands. But herein lies the problem. Not one of us are perfect. And this is the point that Jesus is driving home. None of us are perfect. We've all messed up. And we all stand before the same God who is holy, who is perfect, who is awesome. Verse 23, we just read it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all fall short. We've all messed up. No one is right. 4,000 years ago, a man by the name of Job was sitting on a, 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 a heap of despair. He was a man who lost everything, lost his family, lost his fortune, lost, his, lost everything, lost his health. And he asked the most important question that has been asked many times since he asked this question. In the book of Job, the ninth chapter, the second verse, he asked, how shall a man be right with God? There's a really deep question. And if you've never asked that question, it's a very good question to ask. How shall a man be right with God? That question has been asked through the ages by many different people. Job, a man who lost everything, asked that question. The Bible tells us in John chapter 3, a, a religious man, in fact, a preacher, a Pharisee of all people, a religious man, a, a pastor, a preacher, a priest, comes to Jesus by night. His name was Nicodemus, and he asked a very similar question. He said, Jesus, what must a man do to inherit eternal life? How, how is it that I can be right with God? Maybe you're asking that same question here today. Maybe you've come here to this place and you're asking that question and you realize that there's something missing. You see, no one's perfect. God is holy. Verse 21 says, God is righteous. Job and, and this, this, this religious pastor in John 3 named Nicodemus, all of these people and everyone since then, every serious seeker of God from that day until this day have asked questions like that. A rich young ruler came to Jesus. You see, it was, here's a man who lost everything, Job. Here's a religious man that knew the scripture who asked the same question. A rich young ruler. What about a man who has great wealth, who has everything he ever wanted? Surely that's going to make me happy, right? Surely if, if, all I need to do is make more and more and more money because we all know that the more money we get, the happier we are, right? Money cures everything. Money cures every hole of our heart. Is that not right? Some of the most lonely people I know are the wealthiest people I know. The rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked that similar question. He said, how shall I inherit eternal life? After the apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and all those people that heard the sermon and they were all accused of crucifying Jesus, they all cried out in unison with a loud voice, what shall we do? What shall we do with Jesus? A Philippian jailer asked the apostle Paul and Silas, what shall I do to be saved? You see, man has this incurable, insatiable desire to be made right with God. It's instinctive. Why? 
again, if you missed yes, uh, last week's message, you need to go online and listen to it because we are created in his image. We are created in his image. And so when sin happened, when Adam and Eve sinned, it created a chasm. There was a void that was left in our heart. We have this sense of lostness without God. Man has this sense of emptiness, of alienation, a vacuum, a, a meaningless in his heart. And beyond that, there's the fear of death. There's the fear of eternity. Can I measure up? Will I be punished in the future? Do I have a destiny? How can I know God? How can I be right with God? You see, no one is righteous in and of themselves. That's what the scripture teaches. Now let's turn the page and turn to hope. Yes, God's wrath burns against sin. Yes, everyone has messed up. Everyone has sinned. But number three, God will not count your sin against you. God does not have to count your sin against you. And the word that's used here, look at verse 24, chapter 3, verse 24. Notice what he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Do you see that? That word justified, justification. Uh, Billy Graham, the great evangelist, once defined the word justification like this. He said, it's just as if I had not sinned. That's a great definition for justification. Just as if I had not sinned. It's a big word, but it has an even bigger meaning. Remember how we just talked about that no one is righteous in and of themselves. Now hear me. Justification, this big theological word, this, this big word we find in the Bible over and over and over and over, what this literally means in the most simplest terms I can make it is the act of holy God declaring the believer righteous. It's the act of holy God declaring the sinner righteous. Let me say this another way. Justification is when God does not charge your sin against you. We've all racked up a huge sin debt, haven't we? Not one of us have just sinned one sin. We, we've told multiple lies. We've, we've, we've lusted multiple times. We've, we've hated multiple times. We've racked up this huge sin debt. But can I tell you that there is an opportunity for God to say, to look at you and to wipe the slate clean. That's called justification. It's when God does not charge, when his wrath is not charged, when your sin that you committed, the debt that you have bring up, that you have that you have racked up, when that debt is no longer charged against you, it's taken off your account. Wait a minute, Pastor. You're telling me that all the times that I've messed up, that there is a way that God will not charge that sin against me? Why would he do that? Dear friend, because he loves you. You say, well, why in the world would God love me? What have I done for God to love me? How in the world can I earn the love of this God? You can't do anything. The reason why he loves you is because he chooses to love you. You didn't do anything to earn that love. I didn't do anything to earn that love. He chooses. That, that's how awesome our God is. He chooses despite our sin, despite our rebellion. He chooses to love us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So he chooses. That's why in the last verse of the passage we read here in chapter 3, it says that so he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. 
You see, God makes you right through justification. The fourth truth that we find. So God's wrath, let's recap, God's wrath burns against sin. We've all sinned. Therefore, we're met with the wrath of God. Hope comes in that there is a way for us to be justified, meaning there is a way for our sin to be wiped away. Well, he goes on. He tells us how that sin can be wiped away. The payment for our sin, number four, is Jesus Christ. This is found in this word in verse 24, this word redemption. You see it here. Are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, just like the word justification, are big words but have bigger meanings. Do you know where the word redemption comes from? It comes from the Roman world, and, and there were, uh, Romans were pagans. But there were good-hearted pagans. And they, they would sell, the slave market was a huge thing in the Roman world. They would go and they would buy slaves. Romans would go and conquer lands and, 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 and capture the people that they just conquered and bring them back to Rome and then sell these humans that they just captured as property. And they were slaves. There were Romans that were good-hearted nature that didn't believe in slavery. In fact, what they would do is they, they would go to these markets that they would sell slaves and they would buy the slave back in order to simply set that person free. This is where the Holy Spirit takes this word from the Roman world and that was called redemption. You see, when a, a good-hearted pagan would buy a human for slavery and then write out that person's slave note and say, you're a free person. That's what you call redemption. It's, it's buying someone out of slavery. You see, the slave cannot buy himself out of slavery. A slave cannot say, I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer someone's property. Why? Because they don't have that right. They don't have that ability. And surely a slave doesn't have enough money to purchase himself out. So if the slave is going to be set free, there has to be a redeemer, you see? There has to be someone who makes the payment on your behalf. This is what Jesus has done for us. We were so caught up in our sin. You were not choosing sin. Sin was choosing you. You were under the yoke, under the slavery of sin. So much so you didn't even realize that you were a slave to sin. How do we get out of sin? Can I just be a good person? Can I just one day decide I'm no longer going to sin? Can I, can I pay more money? No, listen, a slave cannot buy himself out of slavery. You need a redeemer. You need someone who comes and can buy you out. And that's what Jesus did. He redeemed us. At the cross, Jesus paid the price that we could not pay. Through his blood, his perfect blood that was shed there on the cross, Jesus died a perfect death, and now he's living the perfect life. The fifth truth that we find in this passage. Again, I, I want you to see the progression that, that Paul takes us here on Romans 3.20 and following. God's wrath burns against sin. We've all sinned, but there is a way to be for our sin not to be held against us. Jesus made the payment for our sin. Number five, God's wrath is satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. There's a, yet another big word. 
justification and redemption, and now we come to propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means satisfaction, means to satisfy. So what Paul's telling us here in Romans 3.25 is that, yes, the wrath of God burns against sin. Yes, we have all sinned. But God has given us hope in, in the ability for our sin not to be held against us. And the way he did that, what has to swallow up that wrath? If I sin and it's met with the wrath of God, we've got to deal with that wrath of God. How do we overcome the wrath of God? Only through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the blood of Jesus is our propitiation. It's, it's the satisfaction. When Jesus died on that cross, he was no longer Jesus. He was no longer the son. He was sin. That, that's why he cried out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, Jesus was no longer the son. Jesus was our sin. He literally became our sin. So when God looked down from heaven and looked upon that cross, he no longer saw his son. He saw my sin and he saw your sin. And he was disgusted. When God looks at on sin, he's disgusted by sin. He must turn his back on sin. And when he turns his back on sin, it's met with his wrath. And so Jesus, for the first time in eternity, was met with the wrath of the Father. And it literally killed him there on the cross. In fact, the Romans were so surprised that he had already died, they went to break his legs because the Sabbath was coming. And so they went to break his legs because surely there's no way he's already dead. They went to break his legs and they realized, oh, Jesus is already dead. What killed Jesus so fast? The wrath of God. The wrath of the Father was poured out on his son that day. And when his blood was shed, he became the propitiation, the satisfaction. The blood of Jesus swallows up the wrath of God. You see, Jesus' blood swallows up that wrath that meets sin. The only way we can deal with wrath is for the wrath to be swallowed up. But how in the world can we swallow up the wrath of Almighty God? It's only through the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice of one who was perfect. And that was Jesus Christ. We've hit some pretty big points. I, I hope that I was able to break it down in the most simplest form to where we can understand it. I, I want to come back, and I, I, want, I want us to understand. I, I want to hit these points one more time. I, I don't want you to leave this place and say, I really don't understand what Paul is saying. Let, let's hit it one more time. God's wrath burns against all sin. And we've all sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all messed up. But there is hope, for he has justified us through Jesus Christ. In fact, he's not just justified us, but he has redeemed us. He's, he's paid our pardon. The, the gift has been given. Oh, and to deal with that wrath, he spilt his blood, which swallows up the wrath of God. See, how in the world, how in the world can I meet that God? How in the world will that God come and meet me? What do I have to do? How much do I have to give? 
let's go back and ask the question that Job and so many others asked. What must I do to be saved? The Bible says very clearly, you can't pay to earn eternal life. You can't do enough to earn eternal life. You're a slave to sin. Our only hope is to place our faith and our trust in the one who has done it all for us. You see, the gift has been given. All you must do is receive it by faith. See, by faith. Notice what he says in verse 25. It's to be received. He says it right here. Verse 25 is to be received by faith. You see it? Put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Not to be earned. Not that you can be good enough. No. To receive it by faith. How are we saved? We are saved by grace through faith. That not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. He writes later on in the book of Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you shall be saved. See, that's how a person is saved. That's how a person has faith, is to trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, putting your faith in him. You see, it's so simple. You say, that, that, that's too easy. That's so easy, a child can do it. Exactly. That's the point. That, that God has made his salvation so simple, so easy, so profound that a small little child can receive him. From the oldest of old to the youngest of young. And everyone in between can receive the great news. That despite the fact we have sinned. And despite the fact that God's wrath is pouring out against that sin. We can be justified. We can be counted as righteous. We can, he can look at us and not count our sin against us. Why? Because of the payment that was made on the cross. And the wrath was swallowed up. In the blood of Jesus Christ. 